0: Someone talked to me earlier today in our time before the service started. We just had a prayer huddle. And I was asked a question that I thought was very important. And the question was this. Did your wife see that shirt before you walked out of the house today? The answer is no. She does not even know this shirt exists until this very moment. So we are continuing in a series that we started last week on three relationships. And what we've said is that three relationships is a discipleship model. It's a discipleship tool that we are using as a filter through which we do everything here at Calvary Church. What we're working on is creating a culture of relational discipleship. And what we've said is is that discipleship occurs in the settings of three relationships: our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, and our relationship with the world. And what we've identified are 15 rhythms. Five rhythms in the relationship with God, five rhythms in the relationship with the church, and five rhythms with the relationship with the world. And we believe that if we create a lifestyle pattern of living out these rhythms, we will grow as a disciple of Jesus. And a rhythm is simply just that. It's not a task to check off on your to-do list. What it is, it's It's something that we incorporate into our life that becomes a regular part of the heartbeat of everything that we do. And so today we're going to take a look at the setting of our relationship with God, and we're going to take a look at the rhythm of prayer. And so how we define the rhythm of prayer according to our three relationships model is this. It is when we have a rhythm of conversations with God overflowing to every area of our life. It's when conversations with God overflow into every area of my life. What's missing from that? What, did you notice that something that might possibly be missing of maybe our, our different understandings normally about some of these things? What's missing is a measure of frequency probably, right? Or, 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 or a time uh, a limit on it. What we're not saying is, hey, in regards to prayer, you need to pray three times a day for 15 minutes a day, and then you're a disciple. Now, those kind of methods and tools and training are important. They allow you to create uh, habits that help create that rhythm in your life. But the focus is not on creating a checklist that I can do and say, okay, I finished that, I'm good. The focus is on growing in our relationship with God. And so what we're doing is creating a lifestyle uh, that occurs. And so what we want to do is create a, a heartbeat in our life that allows conversations with God to overflow into everything that we do. Everything that we do. And so we're going to d- dive into the book of Mark. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at Mark, having that be like the anchor point through which we look at the lens of everything, all, all of these rhythms uh, that we're going to be talking about. And we would do that because Mark is just, it's just a rich book on discipleship. And so we're going to take a look at uh, Mark chapter 11, and that's found on page 692. If you're looking at a church Bible, if you are looking at one of the Bibles here in Southerton or one of the Bibles in Quakertown, it's on page 692 where we're going to be looking at. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. We believe it's filled with life-changing truth, and we want that you to have access to that. So take it home. It's our gift to you. But before we jump into the gospel of Mark, I think I need to tell you a little bit about myself. There's something you should know. I'm not really into desserts. Charles, he's really into desserts. Josh over there in Quaker Town really into desserts. They can't have a meal without dessert. Eh, dessert, uh, don't get me wrong, a good peanut butter pie, that's good stuff. That that doesn't really go that's mm, doesn't get me excited. Sandwiches. Sandwiches get me excited. I love a good sandwich. I love, especially a pastrami sandwich, but I love a good sandwich. And if you're a sandwich, you know, expert like myself, you have a place where you think that sandwiches are the best. Like, this is the best place to have, don't tell me Wawa. Don't tell, Wawa is good sandwiches. I enjoy Hoagie Fest just like all of you. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, this is the best sandwich. And for me, it's Sandwich King. Sandwich King in Astoria, New York. Best sandwiches, hand down, in the entire world. Now, I'm willing to engage in a disagreement with you. I'm willing to debate. I'm willing to to agree that there's probably a differing point of view there, especially for some of you who are from the Philadelphia area. You'll probably be able to make a good argument for your place to be the best sandwich place. I'm okay with that debate. Here's the debate I'm not okay with. What is the most important part of the sandwich? Did you say lettuce? Lettuce. That's not a sandwich. <laughs> it's the bread. The bread is the most important part of the sandwich. The bread is non negotiable. This is an absolute truth. The bread is the most important part of a sandwich. What surrounds the contents of the sandwich, that bread, accentuates and makes the experience of eating that sandwich even better. It doesn't change the sandwich, right? It's not a bread sandwich. It's still a pastrami sandwich, but the bread makes it better. It's still a ham and cheese sandwich, but the bread makes it better. It allows you to experience that even more. Mark could be called the sandwich king of the Bible. What Mark does is he gives us different theological truths, and then he sandwiches them with different narratives around it that allows us to experience those truths in a deeper way. Mark creates these theological sandwiches, and we're going to look at one of them today. Oftentimes, when you find a a Mark sandwich, what you end up doing is you get to a point where you're like, why is that there? Like, that doesn't seem to fit there. But then when you look at what surrounds it, you realize, oh, Mark's teaching on this is so much greater because of the bread, of what surrounds it. So we're going to take a look at Mark's prayer sandwich today. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Great passage. But if you were to just study this passage in isolation without looking at what's around it, it'd be like taking the ham out of the sandwich and just eating a ham roll-up. Still enjoyable, still can be impacted, but you wouldn't get the full impact. What we need to do is actually look around what's surrounding this passage. And what we're going to learn today is three things. We're going to learn about a paradigm shift. We're going to learn about an alignment of authority. And then we're going to learn about an asterisk. We're going to learn about a paradigm shift an alignment of authority, and then an asterisk. Let's jump into the paradigm shift. Mark, again, he's making this prayer sandwich. He's teaching us about prayer, but he's putting it in between two chunks of narratives. What's happening at this point is that Mark has brought us into the last week of Jesus' life, what the church knows as Passion Week. And leading up to this point, Mark would have Jesus Enter into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey as he's just being celebrated, like in the midst of a parade. Mark will have uh, detailed this account uh, where Jesus talks to a fig tree. He goes to, to look at a fig tree, tries to get fruit. There's no fruit there, so he curses the fig tree. Not sure what's happening there, not sure if he needed a Snickers or if he was hangry or something, but he curses the fig tree and the fig tree dies. And this is the only recorded miracle of destruction that Jesus does in the Gospels. All of his miracles are are miracles of construction, where he heals other people, he feeds them, he uh, uh, delivers them from uh, demonic oppression. This is the only destructive miracle that he does. He tells the fig tree that it will no longer give fruit, and the fig tree dies. And then Jesus then goes into the temple courts, and he gets angry. He gets angry. Let's take a look at what he gets angry at. Mark chapter 11. Again, but this time we're going to go backwards a little bit into verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of robbers. Did you catch what the temple was supposed to be? Did you catch the description? It's meant to be a house of prayer. What's happening with the fig tree is that Jesus is using that as a picture of what's happening in Israel. There's no fruit. There's no fruit. And the temple itself was a nationalistic symbol of where prayer was most effective. It was supposed to be where uh, prayer was most effective. Prayer was a part of the Jewish life. It was a part of everything that they did. But where they felt prayer was supposed to be most effective was in this temple. And they look at the temple as this nationalistic, almost like pride that they have. And Jesus pronounces a judgment in his picture of the fig tree. And what's happening is that God is creating a new order. Well, he will strip Israel from this physical building. And just a few decades later, the building would actually be torn down and made into rubble. And God replaces this temple. God replaces this house of prayer. And what he replaces it with is living houses of prayer. What happens is is that in just a little bit, at the end of this week, Jesus would go to a cross. And when he's dying on that cross, what happens in the book of Matthew is we get this interesting detail. Is that there's this this curtain that separates the people from what was called the Holy of Holies. Where where God's presence was supposed to be. And when Jesus is on the cross, the curtain is ripped in half. And what ends up happening is because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are now given access to God. And so God's house of prayer is now living houses of prayer in his disciples. And that's a paradigm shift that occurs. It's a paradigm shift that occurs. God is creating this new, new way of, of access to him through Jesus in which we can come directly to him. And we now live out lives as living houses of prayer. You see, oftentimes when we approach prayer, there's two mistakes that we sometimes fall into. And Mark addresses both of those mistakes. The first one, the first mistake, is that sometimes we feel like we just need to do it on our own. And so we feel like we can't really approach God with what we need to approach him with. We can't really approach God with what what is troubling us with what our needs are. We kind of either try to do it on our own or or we don't want to bother God, but we have this wrong path that we take that says we can't approach God. What is happening in this paradigm shift is that Jesus is creating a way to have direct access to him, and it is exactly what we are meant to do. We are meant to approach God in confidence because of the sacrificial work of Jesus. But then there's a second path that's incorrect as well the one path is not approaching god but the second path that's incorrect is the path that causes us to think that our prayers somehow control god that somehow when we pray we control him and so in this passage we don't just see a paradigm shift which talks to us about living houses of prayer which talks to us about access to god what we also have is an alignment of authority we have an alignment of authority Again, remember I was talking about this sandwich, and what you see in this passage over and over uh, in these chapters surrounding this uh, conversation on prayer that Jesus has is you have these pictures of Jesus' authority, whether it's Jesus at the temple, whether it's Jesus by the fig tree, whether it's triumphal entry. After the teaching on prayer, the religious leaders question his authority unsuccessfully. We are constantly getting this this, uh, reminder of Jesus' authority. We're getting this reminder of this, uh, of this authority of Jesus. And what we need to understand is that this passage is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused passages in the Bible. Oftentimes when this passage is read, it oftentimes becomes a rallying cry for a name it and claim it mentality. It becomes a rallying cry for a prosperity gospel. But that's not what this passage is about this passage is about faith. It's about faith. How does Jesus start the entire prayer? He says, have faith in God. The faith that Jesus is talking about, the belief that he's talking about, is not a faith in our ability to pray. It's not a belief in how strong we believe. It's a faith in God. It's a faith in God. Those four words at the beginning of this teaching are the most important words of the entire passage. Have faith in in God. We cannot place our faith in how we pray. We cannot place our faith in how strong we believe because at that point it's no longer prayer, it's magic. What we place our faith in is God. And we, when we come into connection through God through prayer, we also come into alignment with his authority. Faith taps into God's power to accomplish God's purpose. When we pray, we trust not only in God's ability to give us what we ask for, but also in his wisdom to give us what we actually need. God understands our requests more than we actually do. God knows our requests more than we actually do, and he knows what we need. Sometimes we are so focused on looking for the answer we desire that we miss how God is actually answering. There's a commentator on this book, David Garland, and what he wrote was this. He said, Prayer is not imposing our will on God, but opening up our lives to God's will. True prayer is not an endeavor to get God to change his will, but an endeavor to release that will in our own lives. The problem is, is that when we have a name it and claim it mentality, when it, when it comes to this passage, it reduces God to a vending machine. And at best, it reduces God to the force in Star Wars that somehow we can control. God isn't the magical result of a spell. He is the almighty God. He is the all-powerful God, and he has complete authority. And so our confidence is not in our belief. Our confidence is not in our ability to pray. Our confidence is in the almighty God and his nature. Our confidence is in who he is his love, his wisdom, and his power. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Yes, we need to come boldly to God because of this paradigm shift where we have complete access to Him. We need to come in confidence, not because of our own self, but because of the work of Jesus. We come boldly to Him because we are now given this identity of children that we are allowed to come to our Father and make these bold requests. But as we do that, we need to fall in line with His will, with His authority. Our prayers are not meant to change God. They are meant as avenues for God to change us. So we have a paradigm shift that talks about how we are living houses of prayer and we have access to God. We have this alignment of of authority that we have to fall under in regards to God. And then we have a little bit of an asterisk. A little bit of an asterisk at the end of the passage. You know what an asterisk is? It's that little star thing at the end of the thing. Like it's like like home run records in baseball have an asterisk. Or you read something, you're like, here's the fine print. It's like, hey, you're learning something, but here's an asterisk. Here's something you need to know. We get a little bit of an asterisk in, in, in Mark uh, chapter 11. It's found in verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Why does Jesus add that in? Why does he add that in at the end of, it seems like he just throws it in at the last moment. It almost feels like it doesn't fit. Well, actually it fits perfectly. Our forgiving of others is very much a thermometer of our faith. I didn't create that. The Bible did. You see, if we believe that we are granted this paradigm shift and we have this access to God, we need to understand that that came at a cost. That came at a very steep cost of Jesus' sacrifice. And if we understand that that cost provided forgiveness for our sins, and we still do not forgive others, then maybe we don't fully understand the cost that was paid. And if we choose not to forgive others, then maybe we're not in alignment with Jesus' authority. You see, that person that we choose to not forgive is someone whom God offered forgiveness to. And yet we feel like we don't have to offer forgiveness. And when we do that, when we refuse to forgive, what we're saying is, is that the offense that was made towards us is greater than the offense that was made towards God. That's what we're basically saying. And it's so wrong. The offense to God is a million times more than the offense that we ever go through. And yet when we refuse to forgive, we're saying we have more of a right to hold on to that offense than God. And that cannot be. My inability to forgive can actually inhibit and negatively impact my prayer life. And the problem is that sometimes I can easily ignore that in my own life and actually blame God. When I'm struggling in my praying life, I blame God. Like, where are you? But really, what's happening is that I have a negative impact in my life from a heart that refuses to forgive. My ability to forgive is an expression of the strength of my faith, and it's just the reality. It's just, I didn't make it up. It's in here. Charles mentioned that we had a praying life seminar over the weekend. And we talked at that uh, Praying Life seminar of this path that you need to walk on when it comes to prayer and that somehow we tend to shift to one way where we don't approach God or sometimes we shift another way where we actually uh, think that our prayers control God. I mentioned that earlier on. One of the things that prevents us from actually walking straight on that path is a lack of a heart that forgives others our praying life can get distorted by holding on to that bitterness. You see, this teaching in Mark, it opens up to us an understanding of prayer in in this regard. It opens up to us an understanding of prayer in regards that there's a paradigm shift where we are meant to live lives as living houses of prayer with complete access to God. And while we live lives with that complete access to God, we are to fall in alignment with his authority. And one of the ways you can measure whether you're living both of those out is through your heart of forgiveness, whether it occurs or whether it doesn't. So what do we do with all that? What do we do with all of that? What do we do with trying to live out a life with that complete access to God, living out a life as a house of prayer? What do we do with trying to live out a life in alignment with his authority? What do we do with living out a life of forgiveness? What do we do with all of that? We pray. We talk to God. We come to him in humility, but in security as well, knowing that we are Coming to a Father who loves us. And so we are going to spend time this year praying. As you leave this room a little bit later, you're going to receive a prayer card, a prayer prompter card. You're going to get them in Quakertown as well. And those prayer prompters, there's five of them, are meant to be prayers that we pray throughout this year. And if we pray those prayers, we believe that as we pray those prayers and we allow God to work through us through the Holy Spirit, that we will grow as disciples. I'm going to read to you those cards and then those questions, and then we're going to pray. And we're going to continue to do uh, some stuff in our service today. Here are the questions. Question number one, what can I do to grow closer to Jesus this year? You're asking God to to let you know what you can do to grow closer to Jesus this year. Question number two, what do I need to give up control over this year? Asking God to reveal that to you. Number three, how can I participate differently at Calvary this year? Maybe God's calling you to something different. Maybe he's calling you to serve. Maybe he's calling you to spend some time in prayer. How is he calling you to participate differently? Number four, is there anyone I need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? And then number five, how can I impact the community around me? Five questions, bold questions, to pray this year before God. We believe that if we pray those this year as a church, that God will impact our lives, draw us closer to him, and do something amazing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we thank you that we have access to you through prayer. God, we ask you that you would let those questions resonate in our hearts. That we would begin to live out these lives of being living houses of prayer. That we would fall in alignment with your authority. That if there is unforgiveness in our heart, you would help us to forgive. But as we draw closer to you, we ask you that as you impact our lives, we will then go and express that impact in the settings of our relationship with the church and our relationship with the world and that the gospel will just explode in effectiveness all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. (coughs) Amen.